Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's on page 827. I want to start talking this morning a little bit about etiquette, about what is proper. You're out to eat with friends, and one of the people around the table offers to pick up the bill for everybody. It's a good day. But one of the things that's always in the back of my mind, part of my upbringing was you should refuse at least one time. And the idea behind that, and you should do this sincerely, not, you know, hoping they'll say, no, 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 no. (laughs) You should do this sincerely because if they're like, okay, we can share the bill, you're fine. But the idea is that you don't want them to feel like they have an obligation necessarily to do so or that you're not able to pay your own way. And then, as the etiquette continues, if they refuse your refusal, you can feel decently confident that they don't feel manipulated into it or that this will cause bitterness or harm to the relationship later. This, this repetition of refusal has the function of, are you sure you want to do this? And as I look at our text today, I can't help but see a similar function. As we've gone through this part of Matthew, we've noted that what we are reading here happens right before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And that these different arguments that Jesus has with the Jewish leaders, and, and that he has with, by extension, the crowds around him, are in their own way these repeated warnings of, are you sure you want to reject me? And tying into that imagery that will be featured prominently in our parable today is this idea of seeing these controversies, these arguments, as continued invitations to faith. And that as we see the Jewish leaders in particular continue to reject, there is a sense in which they're saying, yes, I am sure I am rejecting you. And that also ties into what we will see today, that in one sense, God's judgment then is deserved. That as someone persists in their rejection of Jesus, Jesus comes to them again and again saying, are you sure? And so that when their time is done, the judgment is just and true. So with that idea in our minds, let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. This is an extended parable. In fact, most of the text is going to be the story of the parable. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 to 3. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now before we jump into some of the details of the parable here, I I wanted to take a moment and talk about this very common metaphor you find in your Bible that I don't know if we always appreciate enough. And that is this idea, it was one of Jesus' favorite metaphors to talk about 
our relationship to God in terms of kingdom. So you see this throughout your Bible is either kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. And for as common as it is, I don't know if we always appreciate it the way we should. Let me call to, call to attention for, for two ways that I think it's helpful in our lives. If being in relationship with God is part of his kingdom, then we must understand our relationship to God including the idea of God as our king. We rightfully think of Jesus as our friend and as our savior. And that is right and good. But it is also right and good to remember that Jesus is our king. How often do we treat Jesus' words as nice suggestions and opinions to take under consideration for our lives? And maybe we'd never say that, but do we live that in our own lives? I think it's important, again, as a part of our understanding of our relationship to God, that we make sure to include this category, that Jesus is my king. I owe him my allegiance. I lovingly obey his commands. And again, I think that's helpful as we have this robust relationship with our Savior. Secondly, the way I think this metaphor is helpful is that when we're in relationship to God and his kingdom, we are members of his kingdom, his citizenry. One of the problems we can have is we over-individualize our faith. All that matters is me and Jesus. Or I worship God the most when I'm alone in the woods. In one sense, we can fully affirm that. Like, we are to have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And yes, you can worship God alone in the woods, 100%. But at the same time, you are one citizen in the larger kingdom of God. We are saved by personal faith in Jesus, but we are saved into a corporate body. And it's good to see that when Jesus talks about our relationship to him in the terms of these kingdom, it helps us to understand that it's not just me as an individual, that I'm part of a larger body, both in a local context here, in our local church, but then also we're saved into the larger body of God that transcends nations and history. So with that being said, let's turn back to our parable. As as with last week, the parable is not that complicated. The imagery is pretty transparent here. So you've got a king who gave a wedding feast for a son, and normally when you see a king and then a son... It's a good hint that that's talking about God the Father and Jesus. Okay. So the king sends out his servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast. And here, servants, like last week, they represent God's messengers, the prophets, sent to his people. And the people are invited to a wedding feast, and this should not not surprise us that 
this language is being used. The Bible often pictures, especially eternity, as a wedding feast. Think of Revelation chapter 19, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the celebratory event. And so it is clear that we should see this wedding invitation as a call to believe, a call to faith. And specifically, as we see this in Jesus' ministry, it is a specific invitation for the people listening to place their trust in Jesus. But again, consistent to what we've seen in previous weeks, in the story, the invitation is rejected. The people that received the wedding invitation would not come to the wedding. So what is the king to do? Let's look verses 4 through 7. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treating them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So after the first invitation, the first round of invitations is rejected, the king sends back his servants. And this time, they come with reasons that one should come to the wedding. So through the servants, the king encourages them to the wedding feast, saying, See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Guys, I'm going to have really good barbecue at the wedding. It's lost in translation, barbecue, but you know. Again, the picture is of a king pleading with these people, saying, Look, this is going to be amazing. Come to the wedding. But again, the invitation is rejected. What's interesting is we see it rejected in two different ways. And I think this is helpful as we view and have categories for rejection of people today and how they reject Jesus. So first we have rejection as indifference. So some paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. They don't have time for the wedding feast, and in their eyes, they have more important things to do. Again, we see this even in our world today, where people aren't necessarily anti-Jesus, but they don't have any time for him, and he is completely unimportant to them. Now, what's important to see here is that that is still rejection. You're still not coming to the feast, even if you're not the second group of rejectors. Look at those. Here we have violent rejection. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. This is very reminiscent of what we saw last week in the parable of the tenants in chapter 21, referencing Israel's mistreatment, rejection, and even murder of God's prophets. Again, we have these two categories of rejection, but what unites them is still rejection. You can reject Jesus in different ways, and it's still rejection. 
And I think especially we need to beware the more subtle sin of sort of passively rejecting Jesus, of not having time for Jesus in our everyday life. Well, at least I'm not anti-anti-Jesus, right? I'm just sort of ignoring him. But now, and again, this is two rounds of invitation and two rounds of rejection. We see that the king will bring his judgment on those who have rejected his invitation. And, And in that multiple round of invitation, I want you to see God's patience to people. But ultimately, judgment must come. And so just as Jesus is using the picture of a king here, judgment is pictured as the king sending the army. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. God's judgment against those who reject him is real, but it is also deserved. In this story, the people owe their allegiance to the king. Since God is our creator, We owe him our allegiance and worship. And when we persist in rejecting him, we deserve his righteous judgment. It is a somber truth that both should humble us, but also encourage us. Because there are people that we know in our lives that are in danger of the righteous judgment of God. And we do not hold this over them in a mocking way, but we it fuels our love for those people that they would not face the judgment. And there's a call to anyone who hears this story. While you still have the ability. Stop your rebellion against the king. Repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus and you will not face the righteous anger of God. But as with the previous story, the story could have ended here. And again, a call entirely consistent with what Jesus is doing. Do not reject me, but place your faith in me. But the story does not end here. Look at verses 8 to 10 with me. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So, the king has been rejected, but he still sends out invitations, but they are sent out to a different people. The king sends his servants to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Think back to the parable of the renters that we saw last week. This idea that after judgment, the vineyard would be rented out to those who would obey the owner of the vineyard. And even though the religious leaders at the time of Jesus might reject him, 
there will be many who positively respond to this invitation. And while we can understand that this can be connected to the order of the gospel, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles, we saw last week, we can also see here another theme of how this works out. Look how the people who respond are described in verse 10. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Why would Jesus include this? I think this I think we're helped by referencing earlier in chapter 21 where Jesus says to the Pharisees that the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Even the quote-unquote bad people who repent and believe can come to the wedding. Because what is most important, the way you get to the wedding is you repent of your sins and place your trust in Jesus Christ. And so even if you were a notorious sinner before coming to faith in Jesus, even if you would have been included when Jesus talks about the tax collectors and prostitutes, you can come to the wedding. You just need to accept the invitation. And you accept the invitation by repenting of your sins and placing your trust in Jesus Christ. And again, the parable could have ended there, and it would have been a great parable. Again, this call to repent, don't reject the invitation. And then also that there are those who will accept this invitation, even if you reject it. But we have this really interesting twist in in verses 11 to 13. Let's look at that. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in the story, the king comes in and looks over at his guests. And he sees a man without the right wedding clothes. And the king confronts the man, saying, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the king has no answer. And in response, the king throws him out of the wedding. But look how being thrown out of the wedding is described. And this is not some normal, you know, you got to be out in the parking lot. Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As, as I mentioned before, these illustrations, it's, it's pretty transparent what's being talked about here. And being cast out of the wedding is a symbol of judgment. There are many places in the gospel where hell and God's judgment are described in these same terms. Outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is very clear that this 
person is experiencing God's judgment. And for us, it might cause you to ask this question, why such a harsh punishment for not wearing the right clothes? Now let me start, as we think through this, by saying that part of understanding this part of the story is that this is a parable, so the details are not always literally true. So, just as a for instance, no one is going to be able to sneak into heaven, but then get kicked out later. Okay, this is a picture that helps us understand both the gift of eternal life, but also the reality of God's judgment. And so I agree with those who connect the idea of proper wedding clothes to true repentance and faith. Let me read you from one of the study Bibles about these verses. People whose hearts have never been transformed by God can find themselves associating with the church. This heart transformation, evident in repentance and faith and obedience to Jesus, is the wedding garment that the guest in 22, 11 to 14 lacks. Remember, one of the problems that Jesus faced and that we still face today is that the religious leaders appeared to be followers of God, but in fact, totally rejected Jesus. Remember back to the fig tree and the leaves without fruit. Using this analogy of the wedding guests, he appeared to others as if he belonged, but the lack of proper clothes symbolized that in truth he did not belong. And that symbolized a lack of repentance and faith in Jesus. Just as Jesus dealt with the problem in his day, in every generation the church must call to repentance those who want to appear as followers of Jesus but have not come to Jesus in faith and repentance. Again, stretching the metaphor a little bit, this guy He could fool the guards, but he could not fool the king. Ultimately, God knows your heart. You might be able to fool me. You might be able to fool the people around you. But you cannot fool God. The call is clear. What you need to do is repent and believe even if you appear to others to do all the right religious activity. Ultimately, that is worthless if you do not truly repent and believe. And if Jesus ended the parable there, it would have been a great parable. But he doesn't. Got one more verse. I saved this one for you guys. All of this has been within the context of a parable. Here, Jesus speaks explaining the parable. Verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. I wanted to save this. I didn't put this in the introduction because I wanted to hopefully surprise some of you with the ending here. The first part, pretty expected. Many are called. Right? The whole part of the parable are the multiple invitations. 
the multiple declarations of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that God is generous in giving all people the opportunity to respond in faith. And this picture, again and again, of, of repeated invitations and repeated rejections. But after this, you might have expected many are called, but few accept. But Jesus doesn't do that. Now that is included here. Again, it's clear throughout the text, this idea of calling people to respond to the invitation. But as we've seen before, sometimes Jesus doesn't always do the exact opposite. Right? There's some asymmetry here that's interesting. So let me word it this way. Here Jesus is using the terminology of being chosen as a part of this understanding of needing to respond in faith, but that even our faith is itself an act of his grace. So think of what Jesus or what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Some familiar verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Notice the application of that truth that because even our faith is a gift of God, no one may boast. God's grace to us in salvation never produces pride or feelings of how awesome we are, but rather joy, peace, and gratitude. And I think this is a part of understanding how the Bible understands this idea of being chosen. That it's a way to highlight that our salvation, even when we're called to respond in faith, is itself an act of God's grace. So we think of a place like Romans chapter 11, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We see in common with Ephesians 2 and Romans 11 here that we are saved by God's grace and not by our works. In a sense, the idea of being chosen by God maintains grace as grace. If we somehow earned God's selection of us, like a cosmic kickball game, it would no longer be grace. But Jim, doesn't this make us into unthinking robots? I'm so glad you asked. You guys are so good at asking the questions I would like you to ask. No. Even if we don't ultimately understand how this works, right? There is some mystery as to exactly how this works. What we can be confident in is that the Bible is very clear that we are called to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ and repentance and faith. And if we fail to do so, we will face the righteous judgment of God. But at the same time, smashed together like a sandwich we see that our salvation is by God's gracious choosing. 
his sovereign grace, not our own good works or our awesomeness. And one of the best examples is in the book of Romans. This has always helped me understand this. Romans chapters 9 and 11 have some of the strongest passages on God's sovereign election of us. You go read those this week. But what is right in the middle of 9 and 11? 10. Good job. See, you guys are so good at math. This is what Romans 10 says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I want you to see the gospel sandwich that is Romans 9, 10, and 11. And all of it is the word of God. See, I, I talk with some folks and they're like, ah, I'm just going to skip those passages. Okay, all right. But we have to affirm both. All people must respond to the good news of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, and they must respond in repentance of sin and personal trust in Jesus. And at the same time, that salvation is a result of God's sovereign grace and love for us. We wholeheartedly affirm Revelation or Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And at the same time, we find joy, peace, and gratitude. Romans 11, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. A couple thoughts as we close up this morning. And what we need to make sure to, to have as a part of our faith this idea that we are citizens of the kingdom of King Jesus. While our faith is personal, it's never expressed outside of the community of believers. And we are citizens in Jesus' kingdom, not our own. And we need to include that in how we understand our relationship to Jesus, that he is our king. He doesn't just give us opinions that we should take into consideration, but he is our king to whom we owe total allegiance. Number two, accept the wedding invitation. Hear the wedding invitation. Hear the good news of Jesus while we were dead in our trespasses and sins and under God's righteous judgment God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life and to die and rise again so that all who repent of their sins and place their trust in Jesus Christ will be forgiven of their sins reconciled to God and have the hope of eternal life and each one of us here 
needs to personally repent and believe and accept that wedding invitation. Thirdly, God only accepts true faith and repentance. There's no just being good enough to enter heaven. There's no sneaking past the angelic guards into the wedding feast. God is not fooled. Pretending to be a believer or being a believer in name only is not true faith and repentance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And finally, number four, your salvation and even your faith is a gift of God's grace. What was perhaps a surprise ending to the parable is God's word and is true. And while we are called to place our faith in Jesus, we need to see that even that faith is a gracious gift of God. And because God loved us, he saved us by his sovereign grace and election so that we can have joy, peace, and gratitude in this life and no place for boasting. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning that each one of us here would accept the wedding invitation with true faith and repentance and that we would not pretend to be your followers, that we would not be caught not wearing the wedding garments, but that we would respond with sincere faith and repentance. And God, we thank you that our, even our faith is a gracious gift from you. We could not save ourselves. It was grace all the way down. And we thank you for the peace and joy we can have in our salvation according to your wonderful grace. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.